0: Romans chapter 12, is what we're in, a man sold out his nation. Not only did he use his position of power to support the party that was tearing his nation apart, but he used his position of power to rob his countrymen, building a comfortable life on the skeletons of his family and his friends. This man loved money. He did. He loved money more than his country. He loved money more than his family. He loved money more than his friends. He loved money more than his God. We would say that he was greedy. We would call him a scoundrel. We'd say he was a lying politician, a sellout. He is the epitome of everything that is wrong with the system, is what we'd say just so happens that he was given a job collecting taxes for his country the party that was in control of his government at that time allowed these people collecting taxes when they gave you the bill to say you owe this much they could pat it and say instead of you owing this much you could owe this much And these people collecting taxes, when you write them the check, they deposit it in their own account, and then they send the actual money that the government needs off to the money, and they keep the excess for themselves. Not nice. You can probably guess that these people who collected taxes were hated in this country because of their abuse of power, because of the wealth they got from this abuse of power. This man was addicted to money. He was addicted to money, which caused him to ruin his nation, which caused him to rule his family. Not a good guy. Well, one day, this man heard that a famous preacher was coming through his town. And from, for some strange reason, even though he loved money more than his God, he said, I want to hear this famous preacher. No idea why. Why? But he felt compelled, I want to go hear this famous preacher. So he went to where this famous preacher was preaching, and he couldn't see the guy. He couldn't get close to him, the sound system wasn't working so well, He could nothing. So he said, you know what, I'm going to do something about it. Did I mention this guy was really short? <laughs> nothing against short people nothing against short people, but the only two things this man is known for was that he was a tax collector and he was short. So he decides, in order to see this famous preacher, he climbs up into a tree. And the famous preacher comes along and he looks up into the tree and he says, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, come on down because I must go to your house today. And everyone begins to mutter. And everyone says, what in the world? Why would he spend time with such trash? Doesn't he know who this man is? Does he know what this man does? And then Zacchaeus climbs down out of that tree in awe of the mercy of Jesus Christ, he says, look, Lord, here. Half my possessions I'm giving to the poor. And out of the other half If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'm going to pay back four times the amount that I cheated them. Zacchaeus, after meeting Jesus, realized his sins just by that brief encounter with him. And after realizing his sins, he turned from them. But he didn't just turn from his sins, he wasn't content with saying, Yeah, I know it's bad, now I'm going to do what's right. He says, I see the damage I have done to all these relationships in my life, so I'm going to repair that damage that my horrible sin caused. He repented, and he sought reconciliation. This process that Zacchaeus is going through of saying, I realized my sin, and now I'm going to repair that damage, they call it the process of amends experts say, the process of amends. We might say, oh, it's an apology. No, it's a little bit more than an apology. Let's see where we've been in this journey. We have seen that we are powerless over our sinful conditions and left to ourselves, we're just going to keep on doing our sins. We can't change who we are ourselves. We have seen that we must believe that God has the power to change us, that he is the only one and only being that has the power to change us. We've seen that we must turn to Jesus in faith, accepting his gift of salvation as he died on the cross, earning that salvation for us. After we accept faith and Jesus, we must make a fearless moral inventory of ourselves. We stare in the mirror and say, yes, this is who I am. I am a sinner. These are the sins I clearly do. This is the path that I take to go after these sins. These are the triggers that I take that lead me into the path of that sin. And then seeing all that, we repent. No, we confess. We confess. We say, this is me. We confess to God. We confess to ourselves. We confess to trust in individuals that this is who I am because sin left in the dark stays, we, it just grows on itself. Boy, I'm doing all sorts of stuff. Then we see we must be people who repent. We've confessed our sins. Then we turn from our sin. We say, no, I'm going to do complete 180. I don't want to even go near the path of sin. And after repent, we are people who follow Jesus Christ saying, I'm going to go after him. Because of that, as we go after God, learning to love him and love others well, we see the broken relationships around us. And we start to repair those broken relationships because we need those people to help us live godly lives. The first step of repairing those relationships, that reconciliation process, is forgiveness. Releasing, if someone has harmed us, we release them from the debt that they have against us. Saying that Jesus Christ died on the cross for that hurt as well. Now... That's the first step of reconciliation, forgiveness. The second step is this process of amends. We make direct amends whenever possible, submitting to God, his word, and biblical counsel. Let's look at our text. Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 18. Paul writes, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Such a short, simple verse, and yet so hard to practice. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you that you are the God who reaches into our broken life, and you do it all. You forgive us, you convict us, you reconcile us. You are the one who does it for us. And then you teach us to turn around and reach into broken relationships around us and restore them because of the power and the glory of your name. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to know what it means to see the hurt we have caused and to make it right, to live at peace with people. Teach us that hard practice. And Father, as I'm up here, I ask that I would decrease and that you would increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. We are called to make amends. We are called to live at peace, to see where we are not living at peace and take steps to restore that peace in the relationships around us. Paul wrote in our text, Romans twelve eighteen, 18, if, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, we all know that there are situations where people do not want to be friends, where they don't want to reconcile. Maybe it's because someone has refused to repent of a sin that they have done. And unless there is repentance, there can't be reconciliation. Maybe it's because someone has refused to forgive a sin that, has committed, that we have committed. And until they forgive, reconciliation can not happen. Whatever the reason, there are relationships that are impossible to reconcile. However, Paul in our verse does not say at all times, live at peace with everyone. He doesn't. What does he say? He says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. It's called keeping your side of the street clean. I have taken on the challenge of getting my kids addicted to Andy Griffith. And it is working. Before I would come home and they'd say, hey, let's watch Paw Patrol. Or let's watch this, or let's watch that. And now they say, hey, Daddy, can we watch Andy Griffith? I'm like, oh, yeah, sure we can, totally. From time to time, Floyd, the barber, or Foley, who owns the grocery store, will be outside their establishment randomly sweeping the sidewalk. Because everyone in Mayberry had the responsibility to keep the sidewalks and the streets clean, everyone did but they didn't have the responsibility to keep the entire street clean. They just had to clean what was in front of their sidewalk. Sweep the sidewalk and make sure they didn't sweep it into the street or else Deputy Barney Fife would give them a ticket or throw them in jail, one of the two. If everyone did what they were supposed to do, sweeping their side of the street, that part of the sidewalk, the entire street would be clean. As far as it depended on them, the street, was gonna be clean. They focused cleaning their own spot, leaving the other parts of the sidewalk for the other people to focus on cleaning. As far as it depends on us, we are to live at peace with everyone. We take what we are responsible for, whether it is offering forgiveness, as we discussed last week, or whether it is seeking reconciliation with those who we have hurt going through the amends process, as we discussed this week, we see what is my responsibility in this relationship, and as far as it depends on me, I'm going to seek peace. Jesus said this in Matthew 23. Matthew 5, 23 to 24. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Reconciliation. What does reconciliation mean? It means to restore harmony or friendship between two entities formally divided. Forgiveness is a choice to release someone of their debt. You hurt me, I release you of that debt, and your action is not gonna change the way I act toward you. I'm gonna act in a loving way in spite of what you've done. Reconciliation does not have to occur with forgiveness because someone does not need to repent in order for forgiveness to happen reconciliation is when both sides come together and understand truly what was happened and have worked together to restore that relationship for reconciliation to truly occur the offended party must step up and make amends it is the second step of reconciliation consider our salvation jesus died on the cross for our sins 2,000 years ago. He earned forgiveness for us. We don't have to do anything to earn it. We don't have to do good works. We don't have to pray certain prayers. We don't have to jump through this hoop or that hoop. All we have to do is humbly come to Jesus and say, I realize I'm a sinner and I need you to save me. You're my only hope. And when we do that, his sacrifice is placed on on our account and we are forgiven. He took our punishment on himself. He made the way for us to be reconciled. When we turn to him in faith, accepting that free gift, the Holy Spirit is given to us, whereby we realize all the ways that we have sinned against God. He convicts us. We didn't realize that before the Holy Spirit. We just knew, hey, we've done some wrong things. We haven't really realized the extent extent of our depravity, but all of a sudden the Holy Spirit's given to us, and we see the extent of our depravity. Jesus says in John 16, 8, when this Holy Spirit comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin, righteousness, and judgment. He brings conviction to people, and that conviction results in our repentance. results in this confession. As we discussed last week, we turn to God and say, yeah, I realize everything you say about me, it's true. He does that work in us. We agree with God in how he sees us in our sin. Reconciliation happens through that process of salvation when we see what we have done and we come to God as the only one who can heal us. In the same way, reconciliation happens. when We who have offended finally realize what we have done and we drop everything and we go to the one we have hurt seeking peace with them. This isn't easy. This process of saying, I realize I've hurt someone, and we go to them and let them know that we realize we've hurt them, that is a very hard process. And truthfully, if left to ourselves, we won't do it. We'll run in the opposite direction. We'll let sleeping dogs lie. We've swept everything under the rug. No one needs to know about it because we're scared. We're scared of what will happen when we admit the harm we caused. But God says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. We are called, if we have hurt someone, to go and admit it to them and start the steps of making peace. Now, what is this process of reconciliation? God convicts us of how we've hurt someone else. And that conviction, we just don't like it. And as much as we want to sweep it under the rug, as much as we want to pretend it didn't happen, the conviction is there. What do we do? Well, first, we don't say, I'm sorry, and stop there. So, just to get that out of our system, turn to someone near you and say, I'm sorry. All right, now the person turn to someone near you, and roll your eyes at them. Okay? Go ahead, do it. No one really wanted to do that part. My sister did it to me. She has it down very good. Sorry is an emotion. In the process of making an apology... Sorry is a necessary thing to say because we need to share, hey, we do have an emotion. We're not a psychopath. I'd be like, yeah, I did that. Ha, it was great. No, we want to say, yeah, I am sorry that this happened. But being sorry that something happened isn't enough for an apology. It isn't. Sorry has nothing to do with repentance. It's a starting point. And that's why we teach kids at the beginning to say, hey, go say I'm sorry, because we want to teach them that they should feel something based upon what they've done. But it is not the extent of an apology. So first thing we do is we take out a sheet of paper. Last week, we discussed that no one has sheets of paper these days. Uh, and so I didn't make you write down... Li- <laughs> Josh pulls out his pen and his bulletin. Like, and Brooke says, I got this pad of paper. What you doing? We take out a sheet of paper, and we write down what we did, why it was wrong, how did it make the offended feel, and what we're going to do about it. Those are the four steps of an apology. And my southern accent just came out there when I said the four steps. Four steps of an apology. What did we do, why it was wrong, how it made the offended feel, and what we're going to do about it. Now, when we go through this apology... This starting of making this peace, we don't just do it for the sins that the person knows about. You see, we as humans are pretty sneaky when it comes down to it. There's this little group of sins here that we do that hurts people, and they know about it. But there's this other group of sins that we do, that hurts people, and they know they've been hurt, but they don't know it was us. And then there's this other group of sins that we do, that hurts people, and this is the tricky one, they don't know they've been hurt yet. But if God convicts us, and we say, yeah, I've hurt people, whether it's in this grouping, or this grouping, Or this grouping. We are called to go and seek peace and to make amends, which is really hard because if we come to the spot where we hurt someone and they don't even know it, by telling them about them, they're going to feel that hurt. It's going to smack them right cross side of the face and they're going to be angry. But for us to seek peace with them, They have to go through that so that we can start reconciliation. If God convicts us of something, we take the steps to own that sin, whatever it is, and make amends. Why? We don't do it to restore our image. No, that's not the reason why we do this. We don't do it to wound someone else, because there are some people, truthfully, we have hurt, but they've hurt it in a much bigger way, and therefore we make amends in order that they feel that hurt over there, and possibly they'll make amends with us. That's not why we do it. We don't do it to punish ourselves for our sin, because Christ took the punishment on himself. It's done 2,000 years ago, all the debt that we owe for that sin is completed, Jesus died for it. So we don't have to punish ourselves over and over and over again for this sin. So we don't want to make amends to punish ourselves. We do it because God has called us to do it. We do it to live in peace. I told you the four steps of an apology. What we did, why it was wrong, how it made the offended feel, and what we're going to do about it. Here are some characteristics of biblical amends. There is a humble attitude of repentance, love, and obedience. We do this because we have repented of our sin and we're turning from it and following Christ. There's a humility because we realize what we've done is wrong. And there's a love because we want to restore a relationship that is broken. Obedience because we're following God. There's an honest and specific confession of sin. Has anyone ever heard the apology where someone says, hey, if I hurt you... I'm sorry. Baloney hogwash. We're supposed to have a specific confession. This is what I did in detail. And that's hard. Because it unearths all this pain, unearths all of our shame and our guilt. But it's supposed to be specific so that the person we hurt know exactly that we understand what we have done honest and specific confession of sin there must be an apology there must be a a say a saying less hey i did this specifically and i do feel sorry about it i realize the hurt that it has caused i realize it made you feel all these things and that is wrong there is an a request for forgiveness it's never a demand for forgiveness because we don't have the right to demand forgiveness the only thing we have a right to is punishment because we have hurt someone. Thankfully, Jesus paid the penalty eternally for it, but we still owe a debt to this person. So it's a request for forgiveness, a willingness to make restitution for losses. I realize I did this, and it has done this for you. There was one person who robbed his store $200 while he was a worker, and they could never find it. But 10 years later, he comes back and tells the owner God just convicted me of what I did. Here's the $200 plus $50 of interest because that's what you could have made on this. I bring it back to you. Willingness to make restitution for losses, a readiness to share Christ because that's the goal of everything we do. As we bring amends, we, we look for ways to tell people, I am doing this. I realize what I'm wrong, that I'm wrong. I realize I'm hurt you. And I'm going to restore this relationship because let me tell what Jesus has done for me. Can I tell you about his amazing love and how he restored my relationship with him? And then steps for change. How am I going to change as we move into the future? We are called to show that we understand as much as we are able what we did, and the impact of our actions. And we show that we want to rebuild trust by making restitution. Just like Zacchaeus paid everyone he had cheated, four times the amount he he stole. Let me prove how I've changed, and let me rebuild trust. After we write down what we did, why it was wrong, how it made the offended feel, and what restitution we should offer, we then write in the margin, when am I going to talk with this person? when's it going to happen? And then we tell someone about it. Because left to ourselves, truthfully, we won't want to go and talk to them. So we call up a good friend or the pastor or something and say, hey, God's convicted me about this thing. I need to talk to this person. Will you pray with me about it? And will you hold me accountable that I'll go and talk to them? And then we go talk to the person. Sometimes, however, we cannot make amends face to face. In those situations, we must write a letter to them. And we send that letter. What does the amends process look like? Well, I'm tired of talking. I'm sorry, I'm tired of talking. So here's a short video that someone made. It's an amateur video, but it's a short video about the amends process. process of making amends is a very humbling process. But once we go through it and we humble ourselves before people that we have hurt, it's amazing how God works through reconciliation. It is truly amazing. So, last week I told you about my childhood trauma of when I was 12 and if you weren't here, I'll give you a short little. Uh, I was a chubby kid when I was 12. And I had a, there was a friend who was about 12 days older than I was. And uh, she was not chubby because she had hit her growth spurt. She challenged me to a race one day. I accepted. She blows me in the dust. And as she passes me, she turns her head over her shoulder. Her hair whips around in slow motion. And she says, speed up, chubby. And from that moment, for the next five years, I hated her. I had everything I could to show how much I hated her. And it reached the point, we were on a college trip when we were 17, that she actually literally thought that I was going to kill her. It was a bad, bad thing that I allowed my anger to do. I did not seek reconciliation. I did not forgive her. And because I didn't forgive her, I hurt her deeply. Well, I went to college. And then she went to college. A couple years after I did, because she stayed back and worked. Turns out she decided to go to the same college I did. <laughs> surprise, surprise. We grew up in Indiana, and both the, co- the college we both attended was in Florida. So the odds... We're very slim. We went to the same college. I took part, I was not a speech major, but I took part in some drama. She became a speech major. And so she was directing a lot of the drama. And it turned out I started working for her, acting underneath her. And that forced us to talk some things out. And we did. And we actually became pretty good friends to the, time, to the point that she married my best friend and I was best man in her wedding. And everyone back home didn't really know how we had reconciled until one day I would moved to Texas by this point. So I go back to Indiana for their wedding and I walk in and everyone's like, what? Your best man? And then after the wedding, I go up and I dance with her. And everyone about drops their teeth. The old people start falling over dead. (laughs) It's amazing what happens, the beautiful picture of when God brings people together who have been hurt so harshly by each other. Unfortunately, though, there are times when amends cannot happen. What if the person that you hurt is dead? And you look back with regret on that situation. What do you do? Well, you can still write a letter. And you call some trusted friends. And you read the letter to them. So they can see what has happened. And then they can cry with you. And they can pray with you. And they can remind you that even though you were not able to reconcile with that person, Christ still died on the cross for that hurt and that sin. Perhaps the person's still alive, but it wouldn't be wise to directly go and apologize to that person. Perhaps it was sexual sin of the past and that person's now married to someone else. It wouldn't be wise to go and make an amend, process amends with that person. Perhaps the person was physically abusive, or the person might hurt people in their family or yours. It wouldn't be wise to go back to that situation and make direct amends with that person. Perhaps the person broke the law with you and he would stop you confessing to the authorities what you'd done. Whatever it is, there are many reasons we wouldn't want to make amends face to face or right away. So we, always, we take those situations, we talk about it with a trusted godly friend or mentor and say, this is what happened and I feel I can't make amends and they could say, yeah, it's true, or no, it's not. When those situations, we write a letter anyway, and we hold on to it, and we pray over and over God that God would allow us to live in peace with these people. They would open up a way for reconciliation to happen. We never avoid making amends because we're trying to avoid a difficult situation. Like, we're trying to avoid divorce. We're trying to avoid damage to a career. We're trying to avoid financial hardship. We're trying to avoid jail time. We never take those instances to stop us from making amends, but there are some times we cannot because of the situation. Whatever it is, though, we step up because God is calling us to live at peace, to live with truth, to seek reconciliation. So we prepare, we pray, we confide, and finally we take the plunge and we talk to the person we have hurt. From time to time, Maggie and I have what we call couch talks. That's not us. (laughs) We have couch talks. We don't have as many as we used to have. Either we've become more busy or we've become more sanctified or we've become more callous, one of the three. Who knows? But sometimes we still have these couch talks. And we're sitting down, and I know that I should say something to Maggie, and I really don't want to. And she's talking about her day, and she goes on for 15, 30, 45 minutes, something like that. And I finally butt in, and I say, I gotta say something. And she looks at me. And she grabs the pillow, and she puts it over her. It's her safety net, and she's like, "Uh uh-oh, did I do something? No, no. And I'll say something like this, Maggie, I didn't treat you right this morning. I was stressed about what I had to do today and I allowed my stress to affect my words. What I said this morning and the way I said it was not loving. In fact, it was very hurtful. I can imagine that it made you feel inferior and not valued. Please forgive me. I'm going to try to let you know how I'm feeling when I'm stressed before it builds the point of affecting my words and my tone so I can love you well through that. We'll have small moments of couch talks like that. But sometimes those couch talks are a little greater because it has to do with the things that we are addicted to. And we have to confess those things to each other and how we've hurt each other through this process. We've hurt the kids through this process and the things that we're, we're dealing with. Sometimes amends will be greater, not in our consideration, but sometimes amends will be greater with someone because we broke the law. And we don't want to say those things, but we have to seek the peace. Whatever it is, whatever the couch talk looks like, whether it's at a couch or it's at a business or it's in the school, it's with a friend or a family member or whatnot, we speak and then we're silent. And we allow the person to process what we said. Because lots of times they won't even know what was going on. And so we've revealed something that is, could be ground-shaking to them, and they don't know how to process it. And so we give them time. Sometimes they're going to need more than a couple minutes. They're going to need a couple days. Sometimes the person will need to see us living faithfully because they're will, before they're willing to trust us again. And that's what the process of amends is, of paying restitution, saying, these are how I'm going to change, to start rebuilding that trust. Hopefully, the person we're talking to, who apologized to, will receive our confession and will take steps of trust with forgiveness, allowing for the reconciliation to happen further on. Perhaps this person, when we have confessed, the hurt we have done will turn around and confess their own hurt that they've done toward us which allows us to vocalize forgiveness and it's a great moment of reconciliation and peace and God is glorified through that. It's great. Sometimes though, we come to someone humbly and we give our apology with all those steps in there and we've shown our pain, we've shown we understand their pain and we've made restitution and we've showed steps we're going to change in the future and they respond in anger. they don't want to forgive because we've hurt them so deeply and what we do we do in those moments In those moments we remember the first verse of our text do not repay anyone evil for evil be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone in the face of their anger we humble ourselves and we acknowledge that we have hurt them and that feelings of anger are justified and it's okay And we hope that sometime God will bring them through the healing process to the point that they can forgive us. And we still offer our restitution to them. We live at peace. Sometimes through amends we'll receive consequences that we don't want. Sometimes we will receive imprisonment. Sometimes we will receive divorce. Sometimes we will receive job loss. Sometimes we will receive financial ruin. Previously, we've kept the sin hidden because we don't want those consequences. And none of us do. And we've built up this false world to protect our cover-up, to protect our lives. And we've lived hypocritically around this. And we've medicated ourselves to escape burdens of guilt and shame because we don't want these results. But the thing is, God wants us to be free from sin and addiction, God wants us to live in truth, to live seeking peace. So when we decide to quit hiding sin and we say, I'm going to trust my life completely to Jesus Christ, he will lead us to spiritual freedom by directing us to live in truth. And embracing this freedom of new life that Christ offers, living in truth, will bring that spiritual freedom, will bring that life of truth, even when it costs the world that we are managing. Jesus said, what worth is it to gain the whole world and yet lose your soul? What worth is it to live the perfect squeaky clean life and yet inside be living with broken relationships and lies? When Jesus says, follow me, follow me, Some of us might be hiding sins that we have committed years ago. Some people in my past who've come up to me and said, I haven't told anyone this for the past 50 years. And they open up about things 50 years ago and they cry. And confessing and making amends could bring life-changing consequences to these people. In those times, we remember that God is good. No matter what, no matter the result of following him in the moment is, God is good. And as we remember that, we pray for God's power to overcome sin and heal the damage of sin because only he will give us the strength to step in and say, I am going to live in truth no matter the consequences. We remind ourselves that our job is to be faithful to God. Our job is not to manage consequences. Our job is not to manage how people are going to respond to us. We have entrusted our lives to him so we will follow him no matter what and we'll allow him to be God instead of ourselves. We won't go through amends alone. God has designed us to live in community. Fellow Christians give us the strength to say no to sin and to continue the hard steps of following Jesus. So it's important if we say, hey, there's something big we have to say, and I don't know what's going to happen. We turn to someone near us, a close friend, and say, this is what's going on, and I'm scared about this, this, and this. My life completely changed, and they come arm in arm, and they pray with us through the process. We're called to not settle for less than God's best. Even when it feels like we may lose everything, we are to follow Christ. His path is the path of blessing. The lies is not the path of blessing. The hiding isn't the path of blessing. His path is. And we cut off all ties the sin that trapped us previously, and we do what is appropriate to make restitution for our sins. And through it all, we remain devoted to Christ. We follow him. And as others see Christ in us, no matter the direct result, God will bring healthy relationships built on truth and love into our lives. The relationships we need so we can say no to sin and yes to Christ. It is a messy process. No matter the result, it is a messy process to live at peace with everyone. But it is necessary to turn from our sins and turn to God, seeking relationships for his glory and our good. I'm grateful that Jesus came